And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum. Really excited to have another one of America's esteemed bureaucrats with us tonight, Mr. Michael Brown. Michael works for the Department of Homeland Security. Mike, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Noah. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right in with you because you've got such an interesting background, um, Mike. When you were at the George Washington University doing your bachelor's, you were doing it in business administration with a concentration in marketing and sports management. That's not typically the background of someone who goes into government. How did you get there? The reason why I pursued that degree path was really uh, by matter of chance. I went to college in Washington D.C. at the George Washington University. Um, because I was attracted to the topic of politics and government, but I really didn't pursue it as a field of study. I was looking through the course catalog. This was before we were online. We're talking like early mid-90s here. I, I had a blue book. Hey, right? Exactly. Okay, so you can relate to me, Noah. Um, so in going through the course guide, I saw a neat class for sports marketing. And the teacher who was, the professor who was teaching the class said it was really reserved for upperclassmen. And I essentially begged and pleaded and said, this is what I want to get into. It looks really cool. Um, I didn't have a plan necessarily when I was going to college on what I wanted to study. Uh, my field was in the School of Business and Public Management, which sounded broad enough where I could find my space. But I really wasn't sure as far as an organization or um, something that I was really passionate about. So I wanted to take that class. It worked out well. I got an A and I took more classes, whether it was sports psychology or sports law or sports marketing, sports management. I did, I did a co-op position for Coca-Cola during the Olympic Games in 1996. So I got to go and work down there and work in hospitality with the sports industry. Um, so I got all these neat experiences, but that was really the reason why I got into it. And then the reason for my minor in psychology was again, just kind of convenience. All right, I took three classes. If I do three more, I can get a minor. Can't say it was overly calculated. Yeah, the best laid plans, right? Exactly. Man plans, God laughs. <laughs> Never heard that one before. I always got the I always get the military one. Best laid plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. The military like, works. That was that, that came from my grandmother. <laughs> but life isn't always the enemy, so I, I like I like yours better. Um, okay, so so you you went down this serendipitous path, pursued that degree, and you came out. You didn't go straight into government. That's correct. I took a job with a bank who happened to be a sponsor of one of the base of a baseball team that I was working for when I was in college. I did an internship with the Baltimore Orioles because again, staying in the sports field, that was the nearest baseball team in DC at the time. And it wasn't in DC. I had to drive up to Baltimore to go and do that internship. And while I was there, one of the corporate execs said, Hey kid, we've got a management development program. Why don't you come and work for us? You can rotate for a year through a number of our different areas of our bank from credit to customer service, to finance, to marketing, to risk, to communications, understand how our bank works, and then take a position with the bank in any number of one of our respective offices. So I took a job at the bank and left the sports side really behind. And I worked with the bank until 2003 when I decided to leave banking. So, so first of all, you were working with the Orioles during Cal Ripken Jr.'s heyday, weren't you? I, I, I was, and I don't know if you can see, I know we're... Uh, on audio here, but um, I have a picture of Cal Ripken hanging behind me in my office here with a very kind autograph that when I when I met him, not during my internship, but actually during the time that I was with the bank. So uh, yes, I was with uh, the Orioles in 96. He broke 
Derek's oh, record yes. in 95. So as a lifelong Yankee fan, uh, in some ways that hurts my heart, but there, we'll talk about mentors and, and people we look up to later, but that's, I mean, there are a few guys who I think would be more, more idyllic than, uh, than Calvin Jr. So, so back to the, the, the topic here, went to the bank, but it sounds like a regular kind of MBA path. What changed for you? So I was with the bank between the years of 1998 and 2003. And during the year of 2003, I was in a, in a tough job. It was a role in the collections department at the bank. So I was speaking with a lot of customers, going through some tough times who couldn't pay their bills. And it's an important part of the banking business. Certainly the banks have to um, you know, collect on the loans that are past due. But it caused me to go through some self-reflection about mm-hmm. really the meaning of work. I was respected at the bank. I had some fantastic colleagues at the bank that I really enjoyed working with who are still very close friends of mine to this day, many years later. But I realized that I really wanted to get into some type of work that was, that was personal to me. And couple of that with my family life. During 2003, my wife became pregnant with our firstborn child. And another reason for me to do a little self-reflection. So I remember staying up late one night and starting to plot alternative careers and what could they be very supportive family. And my wife said, look, if you could leave the private sector today and get into, you know, your next opportunity or next role, would you do it? I said, yeah. And soon after I quit, didn't have the plan in place, decided to take some classes at Rutgers University up in Newark, New Jersey. And those were kind of the pivot points for me to get into public sector work. I started looking at public administration, which was a field I really didn't even know anything about. I've heard of an MBA because of my business undergraduate education, but I never heard of an MPA. I've heard of public policy degrees, but not really public administration. So the public administration program at Rutgers really appealed to me. And I went through a master's program there between 2004 and graduated in 2005. And when you came out, you you had something that you cared about. You didn't want to just go work in government. You kind of knew that counterterrorism was going to be a focus for you. How did you settle on that? Thanks for your question. That's not so minor of a detail that I failed to mention there. The main reason why I wanted to get into government was personal, and it had really nothing to do with my studies. It had nothing to do with the positions that I had before me at the bank. It goes back to my childhood. When I was a kid, as a nine-year-old boy growing up in New Jersey, I lost my father in a terrorist attack. He was a businessman traveled around the world on a number of different trips, uh, working inventory for a pharmaceutical company, and happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time when he was on a morning jog before his business day in Madrid, Spain. He was struck by the shrapnel of the blast that a terrorist group had set in downtown Madrid, and the shrapnel had injured him, and he was hospitalized. My mother went to Spain to, to be with him in the hospital, for two days before he died on September 11th, 1985. So as we fast forward to September 11th, 2001, while I was still at the bank at the time, it really was one of many signs over my college years and even the years after I left college and joined the bank of maybe changing my course of action. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. It's hard to imagine what that must have been like for you as a nine-year-old and for your family. 
If you're willing, can you share a little bit with us about how you made sense of what had happened and how your feelings evolved over the years? No nine-year-old should experience the topic of terrorism, let alone have to study it throughout their childhood, but I did. I was kind of a news junkie. It wasn't the news environment that we have today. So in the local papers or on the news, when I would hear about some bomb or some blast or some attack somewhere, I was tuned into it. And really, there were only three news networks at the time when I was when I was growing up. I will say that it's something that stayed in my mind, even though when I went to GW uh, in Washington, D.C. to study sports marketing, I was still attracted to the issues of public policy and of government. I just wasn't studying it formally. When I was at the Olympics in 1996, there was a terrorist attack there where Eric Rudolph had planted a bomb in Centennial Park and one individual was killed. And I was in Centennial Park and missed that by about an hour. So it caused me a bit of concern. I also became increasingly concerned as I got older about the use of the term bomb in society. I I wrote an article for the school paper at GW describing how we use that term too casually, like Stuart Scott on SportsCenter on ESPN would call a home run the bomb and Mm. gave me discomfort. But I found ways to express myself, whether it was through an article in the paper or getting a little more active or getting a little more dialed in. I wasn't doing anything with it professionally, but it was something that really never went away. Because of the events of my childhood, my worldview has been shaped in different ways as I've, as I've grown up. So mind you, when I'm with the bank from 1998 to 2003, in the middle of that is September 11th, 2001. Now, that's crazy irony that you know my dad dies on September 11th, 1985, and then 16 years later to the day, is the worst attack on American soil. But I was paralyzed at the time. I continued to work for the bank. I know I went to try to give blood that day, but it, but it really didn't do anything. I didn't know what the call to action was. I had a mentor when I worked for the bank, a very fine gentleman who used to work for the FBI. He was a retired FBI official, went to work for the bank. And I remember I was in his office on September 11th, 2001, at about 6.30 in the morning. I went in early because it was the anniversary of my father's death. The night before, I lit what's called a yard site candle. It's a memory candle for the deceased. And I said to my wife of one year at the time, I'm going to go in early. Um, I'm going to go meet with Jim. And I want to talk to him because um, I feel like there's something I want to do. And this is, mind you, out like two hours before the September 11th attacks. As the plotters were going through their respective airports before they carried out their attacks. And I'm in Jim's office for about half an hour. And while I'm in there, I said, I want to do something, but, you know, my own personal goal is to somehow fight terrorism, but I don't want to carry a gun. My dad was uh, a victim of violence. And from my personal opinion, um, I didn't want to carry a gun. I respect those that do in the military, in law enforcement of all levels, but I wanted to prevent terrorism in some type of way. He was very kind. He told me about some victims groups that were formed after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 as a place to do some research for perspective opportunities. And we said we'd keep in touch. And I sent him a note and I just said, hey, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. He wrote something very kindly back, which still hangs in my office right now, almost 20 years later. And it said, uh, you know, you're a super young man. Your father would be very proud and you honor him every day. An hour and a half afterwards, the first plane hit the tower. Um, I ran to Jim's office because I wanted to talk to him in that moment saying, wow, you know, this just happened. This is, I can't believe it's on this day, but I wasn't able to talk to him because he was taking 
phone interviews as a former FBI official with the news networks and taking phone calls. And soon after, a month later, he went to um, return to public service working for uh, state government. And I couldn't have been prouder for the work that he continued to do by staying in the, in the movement. But again, I was paralyzed. I, I did not know what to do. I stayed with the bank from 2001 through 2003 after the attacks. And in 2003, I was transferred to the bank's Newark, New Jersey office. So every day I saw where the towers used to be on my drive from my home in Hoboken to my office in Newark, or I'm sorry, in reverse. When you go from Newark to Hoboken, you face the, the New York City skyline. It just pressed on me every single day. And then that last job I had with the bank in collections really gave me pause when you combine that. I have a newly pregnant wife in my personal life, and it was just this um, coinciding series of events that, that caused me to make a change. It's it's quite a story. And what I appreciate is I think it's hard to overstate and, and it's it's been a while now, so it's it can be easy to to forget or to let it fade in memory. But it's hard to overstate, I think, the impact that September 11th had on the psyche of this country. And what I love about your story is one of our themes of this podcast is that there are many ways to serve the country. Military is one, and rightly so. We revere those who are willing to put themselves in harm's way on behalf of our country. But but I think as you found through your journey, there are some incredibly fulfilling, uh, high impact roles that you can have in in the civil service as well as a member of the bureaucracy. So, that yeah. That's a great point. And, you know, as I kind of told you how I stumbled into my undergraduate degree, um, I had some level of ignorance about the military. I mean, my father did go to Vietnam in 1969. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was in the Army Air Force, and he enlisted in 1941, about eight months before Pearl Harbor. But I still had a real level of ignorance about the United States military, fully unaware of the different military occupational specialties that individuals can make as their careers. Uh, I was fortunate, and I'll jump around on the resume, but I was fortunate uh, while with the Homeland Security Department to take one position that I held for two years at a United States embassy in Singapore, where I really got the chance to work with our servicemen and women who serve a variety of different functions that go well beyond my 17-year-old perspective of the military. Uh, I remember my grandfather saying to me, Michael, you never asked if uh, you should join the military. And I said, you know, I was scared and I didn't want to. And I had some level of fear because my understanding of the military as a child was soldiers with bayonets standing across a field ready Mm -hmm. to launch. And having lost my father to a violent act as a kid, I was quite ignorant not not you know i recognized that was not what warfare was like in the 1990s but nonetheless i did not have a full understanding of the variety of capabilities and skills and contributions that one can make to the united states military and i have the utmost respect for those who do it and had i had another chance at this at a younger age there are tremendous opportunities in the military in all branches of service that i would uh, recommend to anybody that's studying policy or public administration or public service in any capacity. Yeah, thanks for that, Mike. It's an important reminder that there are many, many ways to serve even within the armed forces, and so many people have called it the most amazing leadership training that anyone could ever have. But I do want to go back for a moment because there's so much to explore in your life and your career, but I want to talk specifically about that transition from private sector to the government uh, and to the public sector because I think many of our listeners 
may resonate with the mission, be interested in, in, in service, but actually making that change can be pretty tough. You know, and, and depending on where you are in your career, that seems like quite a hurdle. So can you talk a little bit about how you went about making that change? I would caveat your statement. I don't know if it's that tough. I think it's about will. I, I think the tough is figuring out the system and how to administratively navigate through it. But it's not tough. It's a matter of wanting it. I mean, on one day, my wife says to me, if you were to leave banking tomorrow and pursue whatever the heck you want to pursue, would you do it? I said yes, and I made a commitment and decision to do it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy. It was painful. I would have loved to have joined uh, the government. That could have been state government, federal government, city government, if the right opportunity would have come up when I finished my master's degree at Rutgers in 2005. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen at the time. But then I just continued to work through different ways to figure it out. When I left my banking career in 2003, I started taking classes at Rutgers and matriculated into that public administration master's degree. In the summer of 2004, I I took a position in a budget role with the city of New York, looking at capital budget expenses across the city. It had nothing to do with counterterrorism, but I needed some way, and I don't want to overplay the word, but pivot is the word. I, I had to find a way to pivot from one experience to the next. And because I came from banking, budgeting sounded like it made sense. I didn't do the same types of budgets that the city of New York had done, but it was a good way for me to construct a narrative that would be relevant to a future employer. I think what's important is that you can weave your narrative together so your experiences build upon each other. So that way I was in government and I can say I've been able to work inside a system. That's the thing about government in general. It is a system and it is a large system and finding ways to connect skills to available positions is part of the challenge. But again, it's not it's not impossible to to accomplish. And getting in an organization matters. And sometimes I remember spending a lot of time in a Hoboken Panera looking at positions and finding the keywords to put in my resume so they get picked up by those auto search <laughs> engines that maybe I get a phone call from. I you know, we, we laugh at those, but those words are important. That said, at the end of the day, all of my positions that I had earned had really come from a network that I had, but also from a network that I continued to flush out. I, I really love it. In fact, I get emails from LinkedIn that tells me, hey, Mike, you were one of our f- first 50,000 accounts. I think they're over 10 million right now. And I laugh at it, but like, I love link- LinkedIn from the start. And like, the role of networking cannot be underplayed. LinkedIn seems like sometimes a bit of a passive platform. And I think it serves as a tremendous opportunity for people not only to promote their work, but to know where people are. And so, so it's about lining up your skills, but it's also about learning how to activate your network and your network's network as you go forward. I I love that. So two, two really interesting and important themes there. The first is the importance of narrative and just being able to, to kind of tell your story and to, and I think the more that you have a consistent motivation, a consistent inspiration, which you clearly do, it makes it, it makes it easier, right? It's much, it's much easier. And then on the networking side, you know, it's it's funny because even in being in a in an MBA program now, I think it's easy to to use networking as kind of a dirty word. But networking is really about people and and the extent to which there are interesting, hardworking, exciting people around. It makes it much easier to do. The so, people that are using network as a dirty word are using it for dirty purposes. I continue 
to see people provide their updates on LinkedIn or I continue to get an email that somebody changed jobs, send the congratulations. Like, don't be disingenuous, but send, you know, let people know you're, you're interested in them and not even more importantly, be interested in them. And I, I think <laughs> that's, that's the important. first thing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about what you were just saying about our, our discussion here. And I want to add a, a third point. We talked about narrative. We talked about network. I'll give you a third N, and I don't think that's how anybody spells it, but it will say knowledge. It's kind of like writing, reading, and arithmetic. Like arithmetic is not the third R, but we're going to call this narrative, network, and knowledge. And like <laughs> when you talk about knowledge, you got to get smart. So like I was leaving banking altogether, and you know I was I when I left banking, I'm not going to say it was this like immediate change into a new role. I had a phenomenal wife who, who supported my career interests. So she continued to work, but I was taking classes at Rutgers when I did that master's program in the evenings because I was a new stay-at-home dad. So I was a stay-at-home dad by day for 21 months, but I was developing knowledge in that time frame, not just about the whole life with an infant, but also about a new field that I was pivoting into. So I was watching all the 9-11 commission hearings at the time in 2004 and 2005. I will tell you, Noah, C-SPAN is a goldmine for information. <laughs> Saturday Night Live can rip it, but I will tell you, C-SPAN is a phenomenal place to understand how government works. You know, you said at the beginning of our podcast today that you're bringing on a bureaucrat. Like, that's, the, you know, let's geek out about C-SPAN for a second here. Like, there's some interesting stuff on there, and you can find out how people are thinking. And you It's know, a soap talk, opera. It, it is. And if you talk to people who are on C-SPAN from the think tank world and say, hey, I saw your presentation. There's no better flattering remark to a think tank scholar that, that you saw their stuff and you're interested. Um, and this was in the pre-Twitter time, right? Now you can collect followers and you, know, you elevate your, your stature, but I, there's nothing that can substitute for just an appreciation and a thank you. I, I admire your work type of thing. I've done that several times throughout my career where I just send thank yous. I, I, I liked what you had to say and have turned that into several coffees around the beltway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, hey, flattery and, and appreciation are, are important tools and, and important, important emotions to practice. Uh, I want to go back to something you said because you called government a system. And I think it's such an important reminder that, you know, while we may talk about government as this like big blob or, or single entity on, on this podcast or another, you know, in the media, even it's not. <laughs> there are so many different pieces to the puzzle and it can be tough putting all those different pieces together. I mean, you brought up the word bureaucrat and bureaucracy again. Tell us a little bit about your experience inside the bureaucracy. What's been tough? What have you found rewarding? What, what have you learned about working inside a large bureaucracy versus some of the other environments that you've worked in in your life? I think one of the things that's tough is that you've, you've heard the phrase projects and things move at the speed of government and whatever that means, that, that, that connotes some type of perception. Um, there's oftentimes a lot of hurry up and wait. So there might be something that elevates to a major priority. And there's a lot of teamwork and collaboration and production. And then something might not move. And it's easy to get frustrated in that early until you understand that that's how the system works at times. But again, this is coming from the perspective of a bureaucrat. 
this is coming not from the perspective as maybe somebody who you might interview in the future who's been in the political appointee world. And I don't mean the political appointee who's the senior executive in the organization, but it could be an appointee who has much quicker turnaround times and expectations because they might be a short timer in the role for a year or two years. So they're there for a very short time and then have to move on to something else or are asked Mm -hmm. to move on to something else within the administration. So understanding the pace and the rhythm, which is not consistent, can, can be a little bit challenging sometimes. But that said, during those, we'll call them slower times, you really have a neat opportunity in government to you know, bring your brain power. The best advice I could give is write stuff down. If you have the neat idea, write it down. Nothing happens in meetings when you just sit around a table and everybody pontificates for a while. You have to kind of mm. codify some of that thinking. It can be a little laborious to do that. And it's also suggested that you try to keep some of the emotion out of that I've hit some challenges sometimes where I get very passionate on a topic and I offer a little more commentary than maybe should come across in an email. And I would recommend any individual to to use discretion in their message. But writing is important. And the the respect for those you're writing to is just as important. I have one small story. I remember that a couple of years ago, not even a couple, goodness, this was probably in 2012. So I might have been a Fed for about four or five years at the time. And I was working for an office for a former Navy captain who had retired from the military and was in the public sector working in the Department of Homeland Security. And I had sent him an email on something and I did not address him by his name in the email and I did not sign my name in the email. And I was called in and I thought, oh, goodness, you know, this is just not this person doesn't understand how how email works. You know, you can just talk to people quickly. This is before texting was hot. Right. So, and, and he schooled me on just common decency and communication, and it leveled me. And I might have received it a little standoffishly in the beginning, but mm-hmm. to this day, I look at everybody's emails and how they're sent to me. Do they address me with the common courtesy? Are they seeking my input, or are they ordering me, or are they directing me? I, I think your, your communication voice Uh, within the government is important because relationships are important. We talked about networking earlier. And if you get a reputation for poorly communicating, that could be really uh, challenging for you to recover from. And Mm. hopefully you have a good, a good team that you're with that understands you, but you never know where that email will get to be forwarded to. Such an important point. And these are, these are lessons that are not unique to government. I mean, no, these are, no. these are life these, lessons. These are, the, these are the bureaucrats lessons. These are not the lessons <laughs> that get from, you know, the agency secretary. These are not the, um, you know, the cabinet official, you know, mentorship nuggets that you're going to get. But I can tell you, I've seen some people rise very quickly in their time in government and likability is something that um, you think you might know, but it's helpful to get counsel from others and, and peers and mentors who are not the people that are running the organization, but mentors who might be five to seven years more experienced than you are, which might be your next two, three steps down the line instead of, you know, that position you get when you're prepared to retire. Have you, have you had, that's a great, that's a great point. Have you had mentors in government? Have you had people who inspire you, who, who you look up to, who you'd want to kind of follow in their footsteps? Because my 
career pursuit is very personal. Um, I'm pretty comfortable now in the type of work that I want to do in preventing terrorism. Certainly, I have a very good management team that I work with regularly. The mentorship that I've received throughout my career has come often from folks that have recognized me along the way to say, mm. hey, I'd like to call you in. I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to seek your opinion. Mentorship is something that can happen, to use a line from my mom, sometimes you meet people for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. It's it's a cute little poem that she said. She, she's right. And, and sometimes you might have a mentor in an office environment for two years or three years. Sometimes you have a mentor that you know, you, you want to seek counsel from on work-life balance and some of the difficulties you've been going through and some of those global issues. As you said, Noah, this is not necessarily about government per se, but it's just about working in the professional workforce. I, I love that. Reason, season, or lifetime. Uh, and, it, and it makes a ton of sense. So we talked a little bit about some of the struggles and the bureaucratic wheel grinding. Uh, what we didn't talk about is why is it worth it? Why are you still in? If you know, does does the pace not drag you down? Does the does the bureaucracy just hurry up and wait, not get on your nerves? I mean, why is it worth it? What are you excited to continue working towards? That's a great question. Because there are days that I think every bureaucrat asks themselves the same question. Why am I still in it? I've had the neat opportunity to work for different organizations throughout the time. In my and to some I've never been a specialist. You know, I have a buddy, one of my best friends is a medical doctor and he's been in the same field and he is doing physical medicine and rehab for his clients for a nice extended career. And that's what he'll be doing 10 years from now. I can't tell you I'll be doing this for 10 years from now, but um, I really have identified a, a real passion for the subject matter of preventing recruitment and radicalization to violence, which is what my office does. While I'm not here speaking in my official capacity about my office, knowing that the work that I do is to prevent terrorism, to prevent another nine-year-old from going through an experience that I went through as a kid, that gives me complete satisfaction. But that can change and that can move into different forms. I got into government and I felt that, yeah, now I'm on the inside. I can make a change from the inside. And I, I felt that Maybe my impact could not be as strong from the outside. And now as I'm on another end of that arc, I've been on the inside now for July will be 12 years. And, and you can make an impact from the outside too. So if you're graduating with a shiny degree, I think that you can still contribute to that space, whether you're inside of government or not. In fact, that could be in a government relations job, a federal relations job. That could be with a non-governmental organization, an NGO. Um, there are many ways to contribute to public policy, and they don't have to be from within government. Our office works with uh, several NGOs and try to provide whatever amplification of their efforts we can offer to make sure that we're all working toward a common goal. That's an important point, too. Uh, service can mean different things to different people. I, I want to just ask you one more question before we end here. As you look back on those 12 years, what are you proudest of? I'm proudest that I can put a human face to this type of work. I think we often demonize our public officials and our bureaucrats. And I had some fantastic history teachers in my high school life, Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Mitchell, Mr. McGonigal. And because of that neat foundation in American history, world history growing up, 
I really thought there was nobility in public service. And I hope that by going to work every day and working on something as important as counterterrorism or homeland security type of stuff, which by the way, homeland security wasn't even a term when I was in high school at the time. I, I like that I can put a human face on this. I mean, right now we're all connected through social media and I love keeping in touch with colleagues of mine and friends of mine that I grew up with who I have completely lost touch with. And, you know, everybody has their respective political or ideological views on uh, the mechanics of government. But I like people knowing that they know somebody who does this type of work. You know, the furlough just happened, the shutdown just happened. And that was a that was a weird time. And it was really nice to hear some friends reach out and specifically say, hey, I hope you're doing okay. You know, appreciate what you do. I'm not in this work for their appreciation. I do appreciate being someone that they can call if they're looking for some some just ground truth and reality about how government actually works. Yeah, it's it's really, really essential. And it's actually the the shutdown and the narrative around public officials was one of the inspirations for for finally starting up this podcast, because I think it was one of the first times where you saw whether it was TSA or the, or the FAA, the, the flight controllers, you saw the public taking notice that it matters if, if these folks aren't there. And it, it's and, funny. And that, that's that's a great point. I worked for TSA for <clears throat> a little more than eight years in a variety of different capacities with our international office, with our inspection office, with the uh, administrator's office. Um, and, I, and I will tell you, in that time frame, you know, there's a camaraderie in that agency. There's people that go to work for TSA and are very proud to work for TSA. And I was for the time that I was there. Um, but it was very, very fascinating just in January of this year to see people supporting TSA. You know, that people were bringing uh, meals to the airports. People were asking, how are you doing? That was not the paradigm in 2003, four, five, six. Heck, you could even go up to, you know, five years ago. So, so that's special, and that that's really, really neat to to see that the public does does appreciate what what some of these public servants are out here trying to do. Amen, Michael. Before I let you go, any final words of advice for our for our listeners out there who may be thinking about their career decisions and and thinking about what government service could mean for them? Know your narrative, work your network, and expand your knowledge. Those, I mean, I think I just learned those today. The network. The narrative, the network, and the knowledge. And I'll make myself available to any of your followers. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn and just mention Noah, and uh, I'll be happy to connect. I think uh, we get better when we talk to each other and when we do connect. And I welcome the opportunity to continue to do so. Well, well thank you, Michael. I mean, I, I, I'm left with the with the line, you, know, you can serve for any reason, any season, or for a lifetime. And thanks for being with us today and for all that you have done and continue to do for the country. This was great. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.